Choke points. Let's go. Brought to you by Acton's Quality Roofing. Will this be the year that the Washington legislature finally takes the jump and walks away from the gas tax and towards the pay-by-mile system? Chris, where does it stand? Well, the road usage charge, or pay-by-mile, has been on the drawing board for a decade now, if you can believe it. At its core, the goal is to find a more stable funding source to pay for our roads, since the gas tax doesn't go as far as it used to. Not because the gas tax isn't high... It is, but our cars are getting better fuel mileage, and we have to fuel up less often. The Washington State Transportation Commission has run pilot programs, feasibility studies, and it has, once again, put a bunch of recommendations together for the legislature to consider. Sharon Nelson is a member of the steering committee that evaluated the RUC. The revenue decline is real. It's a real fact um, that the gas tax is no longer adequate to support uh, how we fund highways and bridges maintenance in the state. So we've got to socialize these these truths to our public. The first recommendation is to finally pass something and get the state on the path to a road usage charge. I think it is really time to get on with it. I think we need to start making clear messaging to the Washington driving public that this is the future. And to do that, I think there's nothing like passing legislation is the way to make it real to people. The commission is recommending that the road usage charge begin in 2025 on a voluntary basis and then become required in 2027 for any new car model 2028 or later. Owners would pay 2.5 cents per mile instead of the gas tax. The method of tracking would be an odometer read. Once it's actually operational, it will be a big shock to people. And so um, having a phased approach where adjustments can be made as we move through time uh, is is very important to keep as a feature of any legislation. The state will continue working on more efficient ways to capture miles driven, perhaps using GPS or other technology. And to get the state's drivers ready for this, the commission believes everybody should be giving their car's odometer reading when renewing their tabs, whether they're using the ruck or not. Another key recommendation is that the legislature dedicate any money generated from a road usage charge to the roads. There's a great concern that the money could be diverted since a rock is not specifically mentioned in the state constitution. In fact, a Republican senator is asking that this be put to voters, requiring that if a ruck goes forward, any of that money actually go to roads. There are also privacy concerns that yet to be truly addressed, of course. Some people believe that asking for a simple odometer read is a violation of privacy all the way, but most to the most larger concerns centering on the developing technology and what kind of data would be collected and how it would be stored and who would have access to it. The road usage charge only had one hearing last session. It has yet to be filed as a bill this session. And one of the other interesting nuances in all of this is that the Democrats pushed through a massive $17 billion transportation package last year that relies on a huge increase in the gas tax. The great incre- the exact increase is of great debate because it comes from those new carbon fees. Some say it'll be pennies. Others say it could be up to a dollar per gallon. We're going to figure that out here in the next couple of months. But the bottom line is, what incentive would there be to be moved forward with a road usage charge if the money... If we get the money that the legislature and the governor have earmarked for the programs promised under their budget, it doesn't seem to make much sense to keep increasing the gas tax if the goal is to replace it. So we'll have to see how it goes. 
It also reduces the advantage of buying an electric vehicle. That is also very true. Now, as part of that, you know, part of joining this, they would waive a bunch of the fees and things like that that are attached to EVs to, to get them in on this program. But you're right. It's also, that's another big problem is you know, people who are doing air quotes, as Nick would say, the right thing are then going to be penalized. But let's face it, those cars are still doing damage to the roads. Right. So there's got to be a way to capture what everybody is doing in order to fund something that is of great need as we only fund about half of what we need to each year when it comes to maintenance and preservation. Yeah, is this um, is the road usage charge designed to be revenue neutral? It is in terms of the 2.5 cents, the way they calculated that per mile is about equals out to what you pay per mile right now with a gas tax mm-hmm. at the pump for an average of 10 to 11,000 vehicle miles driven per year. Uh, that's how they calculated that. No, they just didn't pull it out of thin air. Right. They didn't want it to so mean it more. So it shouldn't mean more money out of pocket. It, sh- it should not mean no. No, it shouldn't. That, that's the goal. Uh, and But again, we have so there are a lot of issues dangling out of this thing that they have to still figure out. And the privacy one really hasn't been addressed all that, can, uh, all that much going forward. So it should be an interesting debate uh, if, if it actually uh, gets a hearing this year. Where to build a major new airport was the question before the Washington House Transportation Committee yesterday. A special commission already has a list of possible sites for a new larger airport, but they're a long way from a decision. And yesterday, they heard from two officials who made it clear they don't want it. Pierce County Executive Bruce Dammeyer questioned whether the state even needs another big airport and says the current proposals represent a false choice. Well, we're, we're either going to be Denver or San Diego. I think that's a false dichotomy. I think we can be better than that. I think there are future-focused solutions where we can have a number of smaller transportation, aviation facilities. It doesn't have to be a single major 20 million passenger airport that where we can spread out some of the economic benefits, spread out some of the convenience, and reduce some of the dramatic environmental and negative impacts associated with this. Also testifying was Willie Frank III, representing the Nisqually tribe. He says he's willing to work with the commission on an airport site, but was clear on where that airport must not go. The Nisqually tribe stands firmly against the sitting of this new regional airport. At any of these sites selected so far by the commission in Pierce or Thurston County. And that didn't sound negotiable. The Nisqually tribe lived in paradise before the white man came. My grandfather, Willie Frank Sr., who was born in 1879, he always talked about that. And hearing those stories, that's always our goal here in this great state is to keep this paradise here. He said the commission will need to look beyond expanding existing airports and broaden the search to the entire state. The Nisqually watershed is one of the only rivers that is in better shape now than when it was 100 years ago. And that's not by accident. We're offering our involvement at a policy and technical level in this process to find a a suitable location to resolve our shared and real issues behind the need for a new airport. Let's find a place where a new airport makes sense. It does not make sense in the Nisqually watershed. The six airports currently on the list for expansion include Arlington Municipal Airport, Bremerton National Airport, South Lewis County Airport, which is in Toledo, Sanderson Field Airport, which is in Shelton, Tacoma Narrows Airport in Gig Harbor, and of course Payne Field in Everett.
Sounds like this is going to be a, a fight, Chris. Yeah, definitely. If you might remember one of the choke points we did last year, we talked to the the, the creator of that electric airplane, right? That got its right. first flight in, in Moses Lake. And the thought, their process kind of mirrors what we heard from Executive Dan Myers, the thought that perhaps the future of flight are smaller point-to-point using electric airplane, using the smaller airfields around right. as opposed to giant hubs like we've seen. We'll, well, you know, we'll wait to see how that goes. I can tell you, you know, living up in the Everett area, uh, Payne Field uh, is great. It's beautiful. For, for, and it's a fabulous option for people. It's that, limited in the number, number oh, of flights, right? completely. And, and again, just by size and scope. But they plan on adding uh, to that uh, because they can. There, there's room there. Uh, because if you can but, get to Vegas. It, you can get to Denver. And you don't I mean, have to drive back and forth to SeaTac. For yeah. people on the north end, it's like a godsend. It is. If, they, if the plane works for them. Are the if, neighborhoods ready to accept more flights? Well, we'll see. Never. I mean, we'll have to talk, well, we have to, talk to Colleen because again, the yeah. people in Edmonds fought the that on the front end. If you think about it, and because, Muckle Teo, not because, just that, yeah, Muckle Teo mainly. Because I mean, the flight pattern goes in and out. Yeah. On, you know, Muckle Teo on the north, Edmonds on the south. So we'll see. I mean, I get them flying over my house all the time because I'm in the flight pattern there. I noticed an there, uptick but, too once it opened, but, and then you get used to it. But boy, I'll tell you what. <laughs> On a Friday afternoon, trying to catch a flight to, to Bozeman or something like that, I don't want to leave at 2 o'clock in Everett to try to catch a 6 o'clock yeah. flight down in SeaTac. No. But I totally understand the people in Pierce County who don't want to start this on the front end because, I mean, adding an airport is, is a huge deal. It is. Seattle's Morning News, 637. Inflation is forcing more people to load up their credit cards to make ends meet, but check the fine print because that'll come back to haunt you. Here's Cairo News Radio's Heather Bosch. Credit card interest rates are rising fast. We actually saw the average credit card rate go up more in 2022 than any other year since we started studying this in 1985. Bankrate.com senior industry analyst Ted Rossman, who points out the annual percentage rate, or what you pay when you carry a balance, is at nearly 20%. Some people are even paying higher rates. Like some store cards are in the neighborhood of 30%. If you have lesser credit, you could easily be paying 25 or 30 percent. This comes at a time when higher prices are prompting 46 percent of Americans to carry a balance on their cards from month to month. That's more than last year. And interestingly, we found that about four in 10 cardholders with debt don't even know what their interest rate is. He says the bank rate analysis found that many people are focused on cash back, airline miles or other perks that come with credit cards. But it doesn't make sense to pay 20 percent in interest just to get 2 percent in cash back. He says your bank statement or customer service should be able to tell you exactly what your interest rate is. And if it's high and you must carry a balance, ask the bank for this option. Maybe take out a zero percent balance transfer card. Those offers last as long as 21 months. Zero balance transfer cards are often offered as a promotion and you'll eventually have to pay interest rates on your new card, but it can give you time to pay off the balance. Also, consider taking out a low interest loan to pay off your cards or, he says, contact a reputable nonprofit credit counseling agency. You have options. I think there is a lot of sticker shock as the bills arrive, but rather than getting too discouraged about it, I think it's important to come up with that plan for moving forward. Heather Bosch, Cairo News Radio. Some of those interest rates. Do you uh, do you check the interest rates on your credit card, or do you just pay it all off? Uh, I'm not the CFO. Uh, uh, but uh, and but I guarantee you, Holly is all over this stuff. And we whenever we get one of those zero percent's in the in the mail as a, we're like, oh. 
well, if we've got something, we sometimes switch over to that and uh-huh. then pay. But yeah, she's religious about paying off as as we go uh, to try to keep that down. Because yeah, we got into trouble early on in our relationship with that. Um, I'm not the greatest when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I, we were looking at 21s and 22% early on in our relationship in the wow. 90s, right? So yeah, she's in charge and she keeps us up. But yeah, you got to watch that stuff. It, it, it compounds so fast. Your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. The owner of a small breakfast spot near Boston surprised her staff with a big gift. Jessica Travis wanted to say thank you to her employees for all their hard work during the pandemic. I survived COVID because of my employees. For the last three years, they stuck by me, dedicated themselves. She told CBS Boston that she had been waiting to use the inheritance inheritance she got after her mom died and thought of something meaningful. Well, I had the idea, what better way to reward them than Universal Studios and Disney World for a week. That's right. She's taking her almost 30 employees, plus their families, on a trip. They are more than appreciative. It meant a lot that she's really, you know, cares for us that much, that she's willing to take all of us with her. Plus their families, the whole group, going to visit the happiest place on Earth this May. 7.48, Seattle's Morning News, and now from the Gene Ursula Show, which starts at 9, here is G. Scott. You saw that uh, lawsuit filed by Seattle Public Schools against social media companies saying they've been deliberately firing harmful content at kids and uh, harming their performance in schools. Do you think this goes anywhere? Nope. Throw it out. <laughs> no, it's not going anywhere. This reminds me of, remember, they wanted to sue... Rock and roll, because rock and roll was the problem for kids getting in trouble. <laughs> no, remember, I don't remember them remember wanting they, to remember they wanted rock to, and roll. Remember they wanted to do rap music yeah, was I the remember reason, that. right? Two yeah. live crew, and they were literally getting arrested for doing concerts, right? Um, remember video games? Yep. There's always a boogeyman for reasons why things aren't getting done or reasons why parents can't be parents. I would love discovery on this. And what do I mean by discovery? I want to find out all of the information. Not only do we find out that the kids have social media addictions, the parents got the social media addiction, the teachers got it, the administrators got it. Let's find out how many administrators and or teachers are on social media during the day, mm-hmm. right? This is not an attack on the Seattle public school system because I just want to say thank you for what you guys do. However... The Internet is something that we always knew would be a problem. Once we opened up Pandora's box, you can't you can't really close it. I don't know if we did know it was going to be a problem, though. It was, it was this promise of this whole new world of this imaginative place where you could find out anything. Well, and that do world anything. exists. Yeah. But the other world exists along with it. Right. Right. We, and we knew all the access to all of this information mm-hmm. uh, was going to be a problem. Hmm. Um, look, I think that. I do think social media is a problem for kids. I think it's a problem for adults. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there's a lot of kids who are able to access social media. And there is what is the age? Like, what's the age that a child should be on social media? Right. Um, mm-hmm. There's some kids that are just go ahead and saying, yes, I'm 18 and getting on some of these other social media sites as well. So I'm not I'm not ignorant to it being a problem, but I think it's a problem for all of us. And I think that um, whereas TikTok has really 
really gained the attention of the youngsters because I think like 40, 50% of kids 14 and under are on TikTok. Yikes. You know what I mean? And so the content and what they're getting on that, it's just crazy. Did you it's see wild. the report too? Out of because t- it's a Chinese company, TikTok, and that the kids who use it in China, they're fed like educational, educational. things yes. and like learning. And then in America, it's all just sort of like viral garbage. Yeah. Yeah. That to me shows that there is a strategy involved in these social media companies and we know that there's certain sounds and haptic feedback that make it more addicting just like slot machines are and those sounds at at casinos so then how do we hold these companies accountable because there is strategy in hijacking our brains they are doing that i I don't know i don't know i i I don't i think i think kids are gonna have to evolve to uh, to learn how to use this technology responsibly like we've had to do with cars and with Mm. movies i mean people thought that movies were real when they first came out right and we evolved and figured it out with uh with social media i i I agree with g you're you're not going to be able to regulate it away you're going to have to teach them uh to cope with it the way we taught you know kids not to cross the middle of the block so they can get run down by cars right but if they had ill intent Right. If we if we find that these companies intended to hijack, to addict to the it's almost like big tobacco. They knew it was addictive. They didn't tell us it was addictive and therefore they need to be held accountable for that. I, Opioid distributors. Same thing. I played devil's advocate on on what these companies wanted. I don't know that they necessarily wanted addiction as to just we just want your information. Right. Yeah. Wow, we just you have a lot of hope in corporate America. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? Like, just, I want your information. Like, if you look on TikTok, when you sign up for TikTok, they if you look at the mm-hmm. the, 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 the waiver or the disclaimer, you're giving up all of your information on there. Right. Yeah. You're, you're giving up your IP address. Mm-hmm. You're giving up uh, your, what you're clicking through, your files on your phones, the names on your phones, all of the different things you're texting all of the information is being gotten on these sites. So the TikToks, Facebook, Instagram, all of these different sites, it's just getting your information. They're getting, they're selling your information. What are you buying? What are you, what is your shopping? And people love it. People like me love the fact that I can go on social media and I look at what's being advertised to me. I'm like, ooh, I like that from Saks Fifth Avenue. Ooh, I like that from Neiman Marcus. Duh. Yeah. But you understand that, right? I mean, yes. you understand what's going on. And that's what probably the kids don't understand yeah. yet. Yeah. yeah. And so and the, we have to teach them. So if you get this kid is on social media or TikTok, whatever social media platform they're on, at 14 years old. So from the time that they're it's 14 to they're 24. Just what tobacco did. But tobacco, but, young. But tobacco wasn't getting your information. Okay. We're, that deviates yeah. from the point of yeah. the lawsuit, which is mental health, not information. I think they're two separate issues, yeah. is the use of our information and the hijacking of our mental health. Like We're talking about two different things right now. Very true. Very true. <laughs> G. Scott with Ursula at 9 o'clock. Thank you, G. Tuesday, time for David Farenthold from the New York Times. Come on, Joe, say it isn't so. David, Joe Biden is now stealing documents, classified documents, secreting them in this mysterious office a mile from the White House. Give us your perspective on this. Well, we just learned about this last night, that some lawyers working, I guess, moving documents from uh, President Biden's uh, sort of a private office President Biden had had 
found some classified documents dating to the president's time as vice president under President Obama. I don't think we know much more about what those documents are. There's about 10 of them, um, but they've asked for a review. And apparently the Justice Department is doing a review of what these documents are, how they got there. Obviously, there's parallels to what happened with Trump and Mar-a-Lago. At this point, it seems like maybe there's fewer documents in Biden's possession, but I don't want to prejudge it. We have to wait a little bit more to find out what exactly happened. Are Republicans sticking to this idea that a president can mentally declassify documents? <laughs> I, don't, I don't expect them to do any of the defenses that they gave of Trump, including that, that the president had thought they were declassified and now they are declassified or anything else. I don't expect them to extend any of those uh, mm. sort of benefit to the doubt of President Well, Biden. it seems to me that if a former president can mentally declassify a document, a sitting president could certainly mentally, <laughs> mentally declassify a document, couldn't he? Well, certainly. I don't think President Biden has made the mental declassification. The sort of how would we know? Declassification argument. Yeah, how would we know? I guess that he could have thought it himself. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. The, the like whole, uh, I didn't tell anyone presidential order, you know, the use of presidential orders that just happened in the president's mind. Yeah. I think we're just beginning to understand the power of that. <laughs> OK, well, I just can't wait to see how this plays out. Uh, let's see. Last time we talked to you, we were about seven votes in uh, to the picking of a speaker. It took 15 rounds. We finally do have a speaker. Are we getting uh, have you seen any surprises yet in terms of what uh, Kevin McCarthy had to give away to, to get the job? Well, I mean, it, all of it was surprising. I mean, McCarthy worked for John Boehner. He worked with Paul Ryan, the two previous Republican speakers, both of whom lived sort of on a tightrope because they had this hard right caucus that was willing to throw them over at any time. And to get the job, to get this prestigious job that he's wanted for so long, McCarthy basically was willing to to, to sort of start his life on the tightrope. He said, oh, you know, you guys can I think just one member can make a motion that we can vote whether I should be fired as speaker. So to get the job, he was willing to basically, you know, hand over the keys of Congress to this hard right faction. And now the question will be, you know, when do moderate Republicans, if or if moderate Republicans ever will break away and, you know, sort of be the brakes on this train? Because Kevin McCarthy is certainly not going to be. Well, one of the complaints I heard was not so much that the, there were so many votes, you know, that's just democracy, but that the the never Keviners never really specified what it was they wanted or they said they wanted something. And then the moment they got it, they they wanted more. Now, is is there a a real break between these 20 and the rest of the party? I think there is, you know, they I mean, in, in that M.O., I mean, I think they, they some of them want policy wise the same things that the rest of the Republican caucus does. But in their willingness to basically not govern at all, let the whole place just basically sit on idle in order to make a point. Or to well, get see, what does that mean? I, I keep hearing this. They don't want to govern at all. So what why did they run for office? I mean, if they're just going to sit there and, for example, uh, let the country default on the debt or take away the power of the IRS to enforce the tax law, what do you accomplish, especially if you're a deficit hawk? If you have this, this thing they're going to cut the, uh, the uh, new appropriation for the IRS, which they need to, you know, to collect tax money, that just creates a bigger and bigger deficit, doesn't it? I think their thought is, and this, is, this was somewhat validated by what happened in 2011, the last time Republicans took over, is that they don't have to govern. Other people will govern. And but by acting like they're not going to govern, they gain leverage both to get on TV, to raise money, to raise their prominence, uh, but also to you know occasionally to get things they want. So you know on things like the debt ceiling or whatever. That, you know I don't think in their mind 
They really think it's their job to raise the debt ceiling. They think somebody else will do it, but they're going to make it really hard and get some things for themselves along the way. Yeah. The other new House rule, which I found uh, interesting, is that they had, there has to be 72 hours be- between the time the text of a bill is released and when it's voted on, which sounds like a good idea. But if you've ever read any one of these appropriation bills, for example— it is impossible for a normal human being to read them. I mean, these are prepared by staff members who specialize in, in budget matters. I mean, does any member of Congress, uh, are they physically able ever to read these bills cover to cover and understand them all? No, no one does. I mean, I, that's why this happens every time a new party takes over Congress. They say, this time we're going to read the bills before we pass them. And they make these, long, you know, these pronouncements of the bill has to be posted some number of hours ahead of time. They never read them. I mean, a, a, they're busy. B, what you said is right, that the bills are extremely complex and detailed, I and mean, they run the whole government. So n- nobody could really read it and comprehend it, in, even in 72 hours. And they're just not interested. I mean, the, their leaders tell them what to vote for, or they decide they're not going to listen to the leaders. Yeah. So this idea, this push for tra- congressional transparency and more time to read the bill is hogwash every time someone does it, but they all think it sounds good, so they do it every time. But isn't that a problem? I mean, I'm, there was there was a time back. I remember back when Reagan, you know, plopped the federal budget on the on the podium and said, you know, look at this. And so I started reading the federal budget, and I realized that there's there's probably what two or three people somewhere within the deep state that understand each budget item, but there's no way each member of Congress can understand it. So I mean, that seems like a bad system. That's how that's how money gets wasted, isn't it? I agree. I mean, I do think it is a bad system, you know, but the con- the government is so big. The country is so complicated. And even in the, you know, the most small government hawk's mind, what the government ought to be, it will still be way really big. It's 300 and something million people. Yeah. So, yeah, like they could become a lot more serious. And, and I think that's how Congress used to work. They could at least learn a part of the budget and try to engage on that and change it the way they wanted. But that's way too much work for most members of Congress. I, they just, I don't see anybody out there really doing that, and certainly not at the kind of scale that they promise when they're running for office. Once upon a time, there was this movement among conservatives to try and uh, take some of that decision-making power away from the federal government, whereas we we just pointed out, it's, it becomes very complicated, and, and distribute it to the states. So basically, the government becomes a money collection agency and then just sends grants to the states, and they do all the, you know, the highway stuff and the civil rights stuff and stuff like that. Is anybody talking in those terms anymore? The sort of block granting of the yeah. Clinton and, and, and New Gingrich era. I, I think there some of that does happen, and I think there, there are people who are interested in that. But it, to me, I don't even see that level of seriousness in the, these budget cutters. I just think these are people who, you know, th- and this happened a lot during the Tea Party Congresses that I covered. There's a huge amount of ener- energy and attention paid to something that sounds really dumb, but it involves a tiny amount of money. Like yeah. No one ever really reckons with the, the choices needed to make to cut a lot of the budget. You know, they get all wound up about something that costs $50,000, which in the context of the federal budget is nothing. Yeah. David Farenthold, New York Times. David, thank you. Thank you. 848 Seattle's Morning News. Dave Ross with Colleen and Chris. And Mickey Gomez joins us. If it seems like we're hearing a lot about heart attacks, it's no illusion. This is the time of year when they seem to happen. And Mickey's been looking into this. Yes, I have. Um, I didn't know, but uh, according to the American Heart Association, their research shows that more people die from heart attacks during the last week of December than any other time of the year. And stress is reportedly the number one factor here. Uh, The holidays are busy. We're often stressful. We get off 
off our routines. Our sleep is disrupted. Uh, we tend to eat or drink more, mm-hmm. exercise less, forget to take our medications. And that <laughs> can exacerbate a heart issue. Uh, I personally have friends back in Texas that lost loved ones over the Christmas holiday from Christmas to New Year's. So I wanted to find out more, like what is going on? And this apparently is a real phenomenon. So I spoke to Dr. Gan DeMoody. He's a cardio specialist, uh, cardio specialist with Virginia Mason. And he says, As you may know or may not know, cardiac disease is the number one killer in the world. I think people tend to it's so common and it happens so frequently that people probably don't tend to pay as much attention to it because it's such a common occurrence. So if it's the number one killer, Dr. DeMoody, what do you tell your patients when it comes to maintaining a healthy heart? I tell them a story that uh, you buy a new car and you take it to the service, whatever the services do, you only put the best engine oil, you only put the you know the best kind of stuff into your car and, and clean it and wash it and, and and keep it prepared for the winter and change the tires and all that. So what are the signs of a heart attack? Uh, you will be progressively short of breath. Uh, you will be having ongoing chest pain. Usually those signs suggest that you probably should be seeking immediate medical care. Now, Dr. DeMoody also says that men and women can present heart attacks differently. Right. Did you know that? I, I did, only because, you know, when it comes to women and heart attacks, we often see men in movies, you know, having like, the, we yeah. rarely see women. Right. But it is a number one killer for women, too. It, 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 absolutely. Yeah. He says that women sometimes complain of stomach pain, mm-hmm. nausea headache and that which women, is just kind of life for women right, too right right that could be that could it be really our is. cycle yeah, right yeah. and then we as women tend to blow off our symptoms yep. and we shouldn't and i i i had to ask him um you know so how do we know the difference between a heart attack and is it my menstrual cycle and he said if these symptoms don't go away mm. and he says you should know the symptoms you should have a sign up in your house in your kitchen in your shower what are the signs and symptoms so that way you know to call 911 and not wait but it's true that isn't it that that some really easy exercise can mm-hmm. Uh, lower your chances. Walking a mile or two a day, uh, doing 20 minutes of, of exercise a day, standing up, walking around from time to time. Well, I thought it was really interesting. And yes, you're right. I thought it was just really interesting that he used the car. Uh, you know, if Such you have a, a car, point. right, if you have a new car, you want to keep that new car fresh scent. Well, same for our bodies. You know, we want to we want to smell good. We want to look good. We want to feel good. But you can't put your heart through a car wash. I mean, is exercise the car wash of the heart? Is that how they describe I, it? I think kind yeah. of, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if the juices circulate. And, and, uh, and not drink a lot. We, we tend to drink more during the holidays oh, because we're celebrating alcohol. drinking alcohol. Yeah. So, you know, everything in moderation. But um, what was also really interesting about uh, this interview with uh, Dr. DeMoody is that uh, heart disease can be, for the most part, preventable. Mm-hmm. Mm. I, I've learned something new today. That you're not genetically predisposed to having heart disease. Right. This is something you actively control. You can actively can control it. And if you're a diabetic, you need to make sure that you are constantly checking your levels and that you're seeing your doctor and that you're getting your sugar under control. And if you're overweight, you really need to see your doctor and try and get into a better, you know, a, a lower BMI so that way you can live longer. And, and those, And that's really the big 
exacerbating condition, weight, right? Right. Being overweight increases your chances of having some type of heart episode. Because your heart needs to work harder. It has to work harder. Yeah. Absolutely. He says reduce your stress and exactly what Dave just said. Keep moving. Um, The American Heart Association recommends at least 150 minutes of physical activity per week. And this usually um, this usually can help you, you know, lose the weight, feel better about yourself, reduce your stress. So and I'm not a huge fan of exercise. I like to dance for exercise. I like unconventional ways. And one small thing that helped me is when you're at the grocery store, park in the furthest spot. Yeah. And it's little way like you don't have to go to the gym. You don't have to sign up for, you know, a big, intense workout. You can find these ways to exercise. Yes. And Dr. Demuti agrees. You don't need to go and, you know, go to the gym and just, uh, you know, get get hardcore into weights and CrossFit or anything like that. He says, you know, walk your dog three times a day. Um, Park further. Like we have a staircase behind our building. I I used to deliberately park uphill so that I would walk 116 steps each way. Well, we're doing all the right things. And that's why you're so healthy and so fit, Dave. That's the reason. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So we have to take care of our heart. We only have one. Treat it like a new car. Mickey Gomez. Thank you, Mickey. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News, the podcast. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. You can find our podcast weekday mornings right at 930. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss the Daily Dose of Kindness.